But I think that's part of what you lose in a larger bureaucracy mm-hmm. in an organization is that sense of it's not just numbers and it's right. not just policies and it's not just regulations, but that we've got to figure out how to make sure that that veteran, that one veteran, gets access to what they need to get access right. to. Friction is a huge psychological burden. Without friction, we would not have fire and we would not have sparks. I got to get a knife. <laughs> I got to hide it. Oh, I end up spending a lot of time ruminating. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bob Sutton. I'm an organizational psychologist and Stanford professor. And this is the Friction Podcast. On today's episode, we have Jennifer Anastasoff. Jennifer is former head of people at the United States Digital Service. I asked Jennifer to join me on the podcast because of her experience navigating the red tape and bureaucracy of the United States government. Jennifer was responsible for scaling the United States Digital Service from a small team of three in 2014 to an office of over 200 people in just two years. So we had three people who started in August 2014 at the United States Digital Service. I started out as the sole person in charge of building the team. And I Where were you physically located? We were physically located in a house that Teddy Roosevelt lived in, right outside of the White House. <laughs> oh, that's so great. <laughs> yeah, there are these townhouses right outside the uh-huh. White House compound. And we were in one of those townhouses. And it's interesting because it was this weird mix of cultures clashing there too because we're in this old, you know, sort of, Regal venue, right? This right, is where right. a president lived with his family for a little while. So it looked like a startup, but it was in Teddy Roosevelt's it old house. It looked like a startup in Teddy Roosevelt's <laughs> old house. And we had um, a broken air hockey table downstairs that I had to take a Saturday uh-huh. to help this lovely human who got it at a garage sale walk that sucker downstairs. And so we had a broken air hockey table. We had things hanging from the walls downstairs. I had questions about that. Uh-huh. We had a room we called the Oval Office that was basically where all the wires were kept. Mm-hmm. There was no quiet place for us to meet because it was this big open space. And so that was where we would go to try to hide mm-hmm. and have phone calls. And that's pretty much what we had. Uh, we had. I remember when we had an argument at the beginning, all of us were talking, we were saying, where should we all work? And should, <laughs> there, should there be stable computer stations? Ooh. Because some people like to sit and work at the same computer station, and some people like to sort of, sort of hostile uh, their working right, environment. Right, 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 right. And there was a long discussion, and this was when there were three people, and then it got Mm. to 10, and so on. By the time I left, we had hired 206 people. In October of 2016, I dyed my hair blue because I had promised the talent team (laughs) that if we could get to To 200, 200. right, if we could get to 200, because I was told we couldn't get 20. Uh So so let's focus on what you did. To me, it's it's, you're building a culture and you're building work practices. Yes. So so describe some of the key things that and what you learned and how you learned to start having a positive effect. Whenever we think about culture, I always think about our values and how we came up with our values. I remember specifically the administrator saying how we work is as important as what we accomplish and what we do. It's a pretty good value. And, and that wasn't even the value. That was just how we came up with our values, uh-huh. right? And, and the way he looked at the creation of our values was we pulled hundreds of people together, lots of people together to come up with these values. 
There were lots of meetings. There were, you know, it was online for people to comment on. We had uh, uh, potential values. We had uh, we had an analog version. So as people walked in the door when we were considering our values, as anyone walked into our door, there was a huge uh, easel. Oh, you had, so you literally did crowdsource kind we of crowdsourced prototype. it, yeah. Okay, because yeah. So I'm, I'm looking. I think I have the, the list right here. Yes, I'll share what the values were. They were hire and empower great people, find the truth, tell the truth, um, uh-huh. optimize for results, not optics, which is very interesting when you're in a political environment. Yeah, <laughs> go where the work is, and just to be specific for people outside, go where the work is means if you have work to do, don't do it from Teddy Roosevelt's old house. Right? You go sit where their users are. Go sit where the users are and go sit where the people who are working on it are. Don't make assumptions. Get out there and find out what's really happening. Um, create momentum. So I have heard a lot of stories about what happened in the past and how people tried to change uh-huh. uh, and have tried and have continued to try to change government. And a lot of times it starts with, there's this big thing and we have to change this big policy thing. Right. And we're going to change the big thing. And if we don't, someone should suffer for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we do, it's all my, I did it. I'm awesome, right? There's there's very little room in all of this for a hero narrative. You'll right. hear it, but there's very little room. Even the start of USDS started years before us. There was a group of people who'd actually spent at least a year making sure we could hire people wow. in less than 8 to 12 months. Yeah, because government can take often, forever, right? right? And, and so... What is so interesting to me to see is how critical our values and the USDS values have been to keeping the organization steady and moving forward during some pretty tough times. And what's interesting, it's not that suddenly everything was easier because there were changed. They were hard, but our struggles were different than they would have been because we together knew knew the purpose that we were there for and knew how we were going to plan on working together. And so that that was absolutely critical. Choose one of my wife's favorite lines when she starts dealing with people who get in ideological discussions. She says, can we figure out the 98 or 99% we agree on first and then we can start disagreeing about the other 2%? Yeah. And I, th- I think that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty good line. I started out as the sole person in charge of building the team. And I remember my first conversations with humans out in the Uh valley, uh, with leaders in the valley, with engineers. My first conversations were generally around uh, the concept of there's no way in hell people are going to go uh, from Silicon Valley to Washington, D.C., A, to work in the government, um, and B, because it's D.C., (laughs) So this, you've got that divide. It's just very different, right? Because you're going from a place where hierarchy, this is just my personal opinion, no matter what tech says, there's hierarchy here. Oh, there, oh, there's, oh, there is really. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe yeah, quiet there's, hierarchy, yeah, there's, there's flat there's hierarchy. No, yeah, no, there is hierarchy. There's always, uh, yeah. But, there's, but, but moving from a more hierarchical set of organizations, or even if it's flat, a place where decisions can be made quickly, uh-huh. to a place where what's valued is consensus. Mm-hmm. And what's valued is engaging others and stakeholders and like bringing people along in the private sector. And specifically in tech, I see people valuing like doing the quote unquote right thing and wanting to find what that right thing is. When you're looking at social change, you also have to talk to different people who have different answers to what the right thing is. And maybe you don't have the only answer to what the right thing is because you're working in a community where maybe they know better than you do. So that was always a huge change for people. Uh When we talk about friction, I, I believe some friction is good. Yeah, yes, yes. 
right? Because you come into a place, sometimes you need a little time to figure out what's right. <laughs> yeah, yes, some friction is good and some disagreement's good. But let's let's go back to your story because your story really is interesting. So 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 you've got all these years of experience of bringing people from the private sector into the public sector and helping them succeed. And, and I, I imagine the goal is to keep the best of what their skills are, but to get them to function in a different sort of world. Absolutely. So how do you make an organization work of people who are used to just doing whatever they want in an environment where, well, they might be pushing it, but there's more well, friction? Yeah. Well, first, we were looking for the right folks, right? We were looking for people who are entrepreneurial, who could do something with nothing. We knew we needed people who are flexible in mm -hmm. their beliefs and who uh, would push but were respectful, right? Mm -hmm. So sort of that humble but but gritty, <laughs> right, folks. So you, so you didn't look for, uh, I'm the smartest person in the room. I want to be the man or the woman that everybody turns to, that, that sort of person. We found the smartest people in the room, but it turned out that the smartest people in the room weren't running around saying that they were the smartest I said people they were smart the and humble. So that's yeah. what, yeah, yeah. And so everyone had to recruit. It mm -hmm. was expected that everyone would spend time going out and, and identifying folks. So how, how did you and other leaders uh, create a situation where it was okay to have a constructive confrontation. I think one thing that I didn't mention in hiring is we hired people okay. who had a mission focus. Ooh, what right? does that they, mean? Which is all they wanted to do, everyone who came, all they wanted to do was to make sure that our government worked today Wow. for the people who needed it. Like that's, that's why everyone joined. And so we were sort of this loose group of semi-autonomous, like small groups of semi-autonomous uh. people who were working, who were held by this, film of we're here to do the right things for people. We're here to help humans access services that they deserve, right? And so that's why people joined. And we thought about whether or not we were doing that, right? So clearly you hired a lot of people who were confident and um, had probably fairly strong egos. Uh, but it sounds like people still were pretty cooperative. So how do you create a culture or look for people who have can push their point of view, but at the same time can be cooperative enough to get stuff done together. Because that, because yeah. I can imagine this completely degenerating into a Lord of the Flies or if they're all men, testosterone poison sort of environment. And that's why it's important to have a diverse group of people who are working <laughs> on these projects. Honestly, that internal drive to hold each other accountable Ooh. to high internal and external standards. How you work is as important as what you do means that we have to hold each other accountable to that. And so there was absolutely ego, right? And uh -huh. in our hiring process, you know, specifically we asked the question, when have you failed? You'd be surprised uh -huh. how many people will say, I've never failed, I don't understand what you mean. And that's something to know, right? Because we fail all the time. In uh, Scaling Up Excellence, Huggy and I, we stole this from some executive, but the, our definition of an organization where there's good accountability is the feeling that I own the place and the place owns me. So that, and to me, you're describing that sort of thing, which, which is that uh, if, if it's just I own the place, I can tell everybody what to do, but if the place owns means that me, that means they're holding me back too. That's so right. there's that two-way sort of responsibility to, for me to do the right thing and to criticize mm -hmm. them when they're doing the wrong thing. So, yeah. But it's tough in real life. Every day you got to fight it out. It's the commitment, and I keep saying this, but I think it's so true. I think 
There's this vision that solving problems together in an effective team is easy. <laughs> and there's this sense that, it, that, that when you get to a certain level, well, then it's going to be easier. And I think that that's just misguided. It's that you have a group of people that ultimately uh, has committed right. to doing that hard work together and knowing that it's going to be hard. What I loved when we came up with the values was this concept that it's not just that you have to operate by them, mm -hmm. but that they're not real bona fide values unless anyone at any level with any title could bring those values up uh -huh. in any decision and get them to be reevaluated because they don't meet our values. If that can't happen, then the values don't matter. They're not real. So that's really, I, I get all these emails about assholes, as you know, because I was talking about assholes. I, I would think so. And this guy <laughs> writes me this note and he said, so when uh, people are being assholes in meetings, what I do is I get out the corporate values and I read them and I ask them whether this is supporting or undermining our corporate values. It's just incredibly effective. It, it leads to more civilized and, and more ethical behavior. And I, that, I just love that email. So the VA, they have a healthcare website. Uh -huh. And in order for veterans to get access to healthcare, to literally see a doctor, uh -huh. they can sign up on this website or they can go sit every day for however many hours. I have a friend who went every day for two weeks to uh -huh. sit and he uh -huh. sat there with his laptop every day uh, after he left the, the army. And he would just sit there and they would say, oh, you know, do you want to make an appointment? I have an appointment for a long time from now. I'm just going to sit here. And if someone has time to come see me, uh, that's great. I'm just going to be right here. Wow. And he did that for weeks until someone said, you know, why don't you bring him in? And he could get his <laughs> benefits, right? Uh, but there is a website that was up, uh -huh. right? It was up for veterans to sign up for health care. But less than 10% of people who went to that site signed up. Why is that? Well, it turned out that it was because it was physically impossible for them to sign up. Okay, well, that's the that's a wall. That's not even friction. That's... Well, I mean, <laughs> I, some people found their way through it. You just had to have a very specific browser and a very specific version uh. of it, right, in order to be, actually be able to sign up. But initially, folks who had looked at it had said, gosh, you know, I guess people just don't like to sign... Vets don't like to sign up online. That must be it. Well, I, I, I want to take that story apart a little bit because mm. I think... So you're, you're in this world where there's bureaucracy and constraints, and some of it's reasonable, by the way. Mm -hmm. And you've got people from Silicon Valley who are used to, for better or for worse, move fast and break things. Yeah. In fact, you had people from Facebook, as I recall. Um, I do. So you've got these uh, the hot shots from Silicon Valley, and then you've got, well, the VA is a really, really bureaucratic organization. So, so how do you make that work? I think it goes back to starting with the user, so starting uh -huh. with the vet. If literally, you know, if, if, uh -huh. if you and I, Bob, if we were going to create the most frustrating process ever, uh -huh. we probably, planning it, wouldn't come up with as good of a frustrating process, <laughs> right? Yes. As, as has been come up over many years and many layers at the VA and, and throughout government. And so the team that went in talked to veterans and literally did a video of a veteran trying to sign on. Perfect. That veteran, Dominic, had tried to sign on 12 times and had been unable to sign on to the site. And as he was signing on, he, he made some comment like, it's like trying to go over the hill and through the woods past IEDs that are blowing up. And then he had a choice word that he shared. And, and he said, it's like the VA is just telling me that they don't want me to sign up. And um, that video also showed him 
trying out a new site that had been based on user experience and conversations go. with vets. And it showed him saying, yeah, this is amazing. Wow, it just says right here, big button, press this to apply. <laughs> What's your name? It's very easy for me to sign up. The government should use something like this. And it was actually the government, right, that did. Right. And so that was amazing because it was huge for people at all levels of government to see how frustrating it is. Because I think that's part of what you lose in a larger bureaucracy mm -hmm. in an organization is that sense of it's not just numbers and it's right. not just policies and it's not just regulations, but that we've got to figure out how to make sure that that veteran, that one veteran, gets access to what they need to get access right. to. Because if they don't, it hurts their lives. Like he had taken, Dominic had taken time off of work, right? He had PTSD, he had kids he had to put through school, and he had taken time off of huh. work to try to sign up and failed. How the heck, given the political environment and the, and the fake or real news, whatever you prefer to call it, how do you optimize for results, not optics, in that world? As an outsider, it just seems impossible to me. So I'll start with a decision that we made when we started USDS, which was that we weren't, for the first six months, I think it was, we did not actively seek out press. And many programs Ooh. are started in government by press release. There's a, a yep. joking statement that it's, you know, programmed by press release. Someone comes up, has a great idea, says, we're going to start this thing. And suddenly now you have to create the program and see if it works, right? We very actively wanted to make sure we had done enough good work and that we had actually had wow. results before we said anything. That's one thing, honestly, that I really love about working with engineers and that I really love about working with people who deeply care about data and who deeply care about making sure that we're doing the right thing from a, a data perspective, being able to show it. So, so let, let me throw out some of yeah. the lessons that I take from that and have you comment on them. Sure. Uh, the first one, which is a theme, uh, and, and, and uh, apparently Harry Truman didn't say this, but I always um, misattributed him like everybody else said, it's amazing how much you can get done if you don't worry about who gets credit. Yeah. That seems to me to be an underlying value of the USDS that you're talking about. And, 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 th and then the other thing is there's all this notion that if you have transparency and celebrated heroes, that it's going to be great, but it's not always so good. You're making the argument that, uh, that people who sort of hide in the corner and do the right thing and stay away from the press and the impression management part sometimes can help you actually do the right thing and, oh, and gee, by the way, have better stuff to brag about later too. That's one of the things that is so interesting about this work is that we had this small group of people, but they ha we had amazing air cover, right? And so mm -hmm. what that meant was the, the entire federal government had gone through and had seen what can happen when technology fails to serve right. citizens, right? They had seen, the president had seen it, the administration had seen it, and didn't want that to happen again. You know, the digital service had the support uh -huh. of a very divided Congress while President Obama was in office. So when we got started, Democrats and Republicans supported this because I think people have an understanding across aisles uh -huh. and ideologies that government should do what it says it's going to do and should do it well. And the idea that we had results, right, not just optics, but right. results that we could show that we were doing, we were making things more effective, we were making things more efficient, was exceedingly helpful. Well, so, so it is interesting, let's talk about air cover. If you're going to do something 
that is likely to meet a lot of resistance, that there is an argument, this is a case where having the authority of air cover actually helps. Yep. Because you're allowed to break the rules. You're, people don't ask so many questions. Well, and I would, I would be careful because in government, we're not allowed to break the rules. Okay. Right? But the issue was that people who were interpreted, like, that a lot of times the interpretations of the rules right. in government, were, the rules were interpreted as if it doesn't explicitly say something is possible, then it's not possible. And that's just not the case, right? So when when folks were introduced to cloud, right, it doesn't say we can store data in places that aren't servers in a room. Right, right. Therefore, we can't store data in places that are servers in a room. Or it doesn't say that we can go out and ask students, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, whether or not this works for them. So we can't go out and ask students whether or not. So, this so that's 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 the assumption. There's an implicit no. Or there's an implicit yes if it's not written down. And that's one of the cultural differences, right? I would say between for-profit in a lot of cases, not every case, but in for-profit and in uh, the public sector broadly, which is a lot of people can say no to anything. Right. Anything, right? And one person in one place that's in a small place in a corner, sometimes you don't even know who they are, can kill it. And a lot of people have to say yes for anything to happen. And so when I say air cover, there are two aspects of air Uh cover, right? One was when the president says this is important and we've got to do it, that's great. And that's very helpful. And a lot more people are willing to say yes or entertain a yes. And Uh a lot fewer people will push back for no reason. So so I I really like the stuff that you said about air cover. And, And one of the problems in many bureaucracies is that sometimes people get in what I call the malicious compliance mode. Oh, yeah. And that's where they see themselves as automatically saying no to everything, both because they're afraid something bad's going to happen and they're going to get blamed, and because it gives them the feeling of having power over other people. But that notion that we're going to assume it's a yes within the constraints of the rules as opposed to assuming it's a no, is it's very powerful. And, and it does reduce needless friction and wheel spinning too. Well, what's also powerful, though, I would say is – saying, how can I help you be more powerful in accomplishing the goals that you want to accomplish? That's great. Because most of the time people come in and say, the first piece, not the second piece. So I would like to thank our guest today, Jennifer Anastasoff. She's done lots of interesting things, but today we especially um, focused on the three and a half years that she played a key role in helping to build the United States Digital Service. So thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer. Thank you. One of the biggest things I took from Jennifer was how her team made results, not optics, one of their core values. I especially admired that because the best leaders in the best workplaces create conditions where people are rewarded for smart action, not just smart talk, and for getting the right things done, not just playing organizational politics. Please spread the word about the Friction Podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues, your family, and even your therapists. On the next episode, we will be joined by Henning Pisunka, an assistant professor at INSEAD and a Stanford alum. We're going to tackle the causes of organizational waste and how to get comfortable with rejecting ideas. And now for the final tangent. There's this amazing document called the Paper Reduction Act. Oh, yes, and and, the Paperwork Reduction 
Act. Paperwork Reduction Act. It was passed before computers became as big as they are and as great as they are. And people in the 80s and before around America were getting like surveys from every agency, right. like 20 page surveys. And people were just tired of it. They didn't want surveys anymore. They didn't want all this paper. So the, the government decided to legislate against this paper. So now there's this Paperwork Reduction Act and there's an organization that exists uh, to make sure that we don't send out too much paper. So anyone mm. who wants to ask more than I think it's nine questions or something of a citizen needs to go through a long process. A lot of paperwork. <laughs> a lot of paperwork. And so initially it was thought that A-B testing was against that act because so if you're A-B testing, are you asking more than nine questions by giving someone one website versus another? Maybe no, right? It didn't work with computers <laughs> um, and it didn't work in this area. And so there was a pilot that was created to say, hey, let's test this out and see if it doesn't, see if, if actually um, we don't need to wait for six months to do A-B testing on a website. We can't do this without you. Tell us what's driving you crazy and what are you doing to make life better in your organization, for yourself, and for the people that you work with? Please send us your friction stories, tips, and tricks. We'd love to hear from you via Twitter at eCorner, or please send us an email at stvp-ecorner at stanford.edu. The Friction Podcast is a Stanford eCorner original series brought to you by Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Designing Organizational Change. Friction is produced by Rachel Jilkowski and Ali Rico. Jake Smith and Stife Studios are our editor and audio engineers. Susie Allen and Victoria Johnson are our writing and marketing team. Danielle Stusi is our designer and digital products manager. And I'm Bob Sutton. Thanks for joining us. This is the Friction Podcast. Mm -hmm.